This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. Your hosts are Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. In this episode, we're talking about mental health in Star Trek. And because this is such an important subject, we felt we really needed to do it justice. So that is why this episode is in two parts. In part one of this two-part podcast, we will be covering mental health in Star Trek Discovery, in the original series, and we'll have our very own mailbag of listeners and fans sharing their own mental health stories and how Star Trek has helped them. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's the primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. They haven't run out of history quite yet. to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett, and joining me as ever is Clara Cook. Hi, Clara. How are you? I'm good, Duncan. How are you? I'm not too bad. I'm in, in uh, good fettle, in good uh, physical health, and, and good mental health as well. <laughs> Touch wood, hopefully, today, because that's the topic that we're going to be talking about today. Um, we're recording on World Mental Health Day 2018, and we thought this was as good a time as any to tackle a subject that we've been kind of debating, covering on primitive culture for quite a while now, something that we, we kind of thought is a, a really key issue for Star Trek and a, a key issue for our own society for our own you know well-being our own human experience really something that we should talk about and that's mental health and mental illness in the 23rd 22nd 24th centuries finally we got around to it we thought you know we couldn't pass up the opportunity to record on world mental health day itself and take a look at how star trek has kind of engaged with this subject over the years so we're going to be looking at how the different Star Trek shows have represented mental health and mental illness over the years. But I also thought before we did that, that maybe something that we should touch on is something that I was very aware of and that came out of some of the discussions that Clara and I were having when we were planning this show, which is that Star Trek itself has played a big role in a lot of people's mental health. You know, I know a lot of people have found Star Trek a great source of solace or of support at difficult times in their lives. And we just thought we don't normally do a kind of mailbag section on primitive culture. Some of the other Trek FM shows do that more regularly. But I just thought this was an example where it would be a good topic to open it out. So we we put the word out on the Babel conference, we put the word out on Twitter, just asking if anyone wanted to share any of their kind of personal stories of how Star Trek has helped them with their own mental health. And we got some quite interesting responses, didn't we, Clara? Yeah, so I think that Star Trek is one of these things 
that has really helped people, especially during times of crisis or when they're feeling really low, partly because it's something that a lot of people started watching in childhood and there's a real nostalgia feel to it, but also partly, partly because you're encouraged when you're watching the show to feel like you're on the journey with these characters and the characters themselves also struggle from their own mental health problems and overcome them. So you, you are also given this message of hope. Uh, one of the uh, individuals that we had who uh, wrote in was called Liam Carrigan. And he says that, I'll read out his statement here. He says, I've had depression on and off since I was a teenager. Star Trek in particular, TNG and DS9, has always been a source of comfort and escape from my troubles. I think it's because of the sense of family and of support that these two shows in particular portray through the characters. Data in particular was always a hero of mine. The way he strives to understand emotions and to become a better person in some ways parallels my own struggles to relate to people and to understand and control the negative emotions I sometimes have. And in DS9, I kind of related to Garrick in a similar way. He's an outsider, he's done wrong, and he struggles to fit in. But in his heart, when it matters, he comes through for his friends and his people. I guess that's why Star Trek always helps to bring out, bring me out of a slump. It showcases the best qualities in all of us and also the potential for what we can be when we, when we keep moving forward and we have good friends around us. And I thought that was really interesting because Data actually is one of those characters you do hear people talking about a lot because he's struggling to feel human emotions. He's struggling to become more human. But at the same time, he also exhibits some of those characteristics that perhaps people who are on a spectrum might feel or might, might think how they might think. And of course, not that being on a spectrum is in any way a mental illness, but in a world where a lot of people think one way and you think differently, that can lead to feelings of like depression, feelings, you know, being alienated or feeling lonely, and that can lead to poor mental health. So I thought Data was an interesting character to to sort of bring out and also Garrick as well, because as we know, Garrick has a phobia and quite severe phobia and an addiction. He does. Yeah. I mean, Garrick certainly uh, someone that we'll probably come on to talk about a bit later, you know, has a couple of um, quite severe episodes of, of poor mental health, really. Data, it's interesting. I was sort of wondering whether part of the the reassuring quality of Data, though, is almost that, yes, he's striving. Yes, he's kind of struggling, life struggling to understand himself and other people and so on. But there's also something quite reassuring about Data. You know, Data doesn't ever get depressed. He doesn't ever get upset. He's very kind of He's quite a sort of safe person to be around somehow. And there, of course, there's that episode Hero Worship where the young boy who's lost his parents latches on to Data and kind of tries to turn himself into an android, basically. And he's doing that because he wants to protect himself from the emotions that he's feeling. And he kind of feels, well, if I can be like Data, then I'll be safe in a way. It may also be, you know, Data is a very kind character. He's a very sort of, you know, although we, you know, supposedly he has no emotions, he, he seems very kind of... I don't know. He's he's someone that you feel safe around. He's someone that you feel is kind of looking out for you, is kind of a decent, a good friend in a way. And I think maybe that's part of what comes across. But but definitely with Star Trek more generally, we have these characters who, you know, they're they're putting their best foot forward. They care about each other. There is that kind of strong sense of family really in all the shows and, and of, you know, supporting each other, looking out for each other. And really, I suppose, if you're going through a difficult period yourself, that's kind of what you need is that kind of sense of support. And, um, you, you know, other people who've been in touch with us have, have talked about, for example, how the fan community of Star Trek has really helped them, you know, finding other fans out there. I mean, for example, Lynn Payne contacted us just today, actually, to describe some of the really terrible circumstances, really, that she'd been going through and how Star Trek had helped her with this. 
She said, starting in December 2015, I had the worst two years of my life. Our son died, my father died, and six of my friends died. Star Trek was my escape and my solace. I rewatched Enterprise, then Voyager. I read the novels and the comics. I discovered Trek FM, and I found a Trek family online through Facebook and especially through Twitter. And then she goes on to say, the, the Voyager episode, Real Life, was the first time I really cried. The Doctor experienced loss and it enabled me to let go and grieve. I can't really express how much comfort watching and reading Trek and the friendships that I've made have brought to me. And I suppose, you know, so what Lynn is talking about there is the fact that it's not just Star Trek on screen that is a source of solace and support. It's not just the kind of cosy world that you can kind of go back to with these very decent sort of generally kind sort of good good people if you know what i mean surround yourself within the fiction but it's also the fact that star trek fans are typically you know they're people who watch that show and they aspire to a lot of those things and i think you know i've seen myself even just online you, you know sometimes you have a star trek fan who, who will post something saying i'm having a hard day can anyone you know help me out tell me some positive things and people would chip in and help sometimes people even you know in a situation where they need financial support or they need practical support of some kind and i think it's true the fan community certainly online and i think this is probably even more so the case you, you know if you're like in real life, in contact with other fan groups and so on. It is certainly a fan community that looks out for its members to a certain extent, where there's a kind of a generosity, I think, of, of kind of care in a way to to help those who are going through a difficult time. Yeah, I mean, Star Trek does sort of present an utopian view of humanity where human beings care about each other, I would say, in ways that we don't always necessarily see in today's world. And uh, I definitely find Star Trek quite comforting to watch, especially in, you know, the sort of period that we're living through now where we have some very distressing world events happening. And so I was quite struck by Rick Trilsch. Apologies if I say your, your name wrong, Rick. <laughs> um, and he, he, he replied to us on Twitter and he said, it's helping me now in this dark political climate in which we find ourselves. I took a break from Trek for years, but with Discovery, I came back to it and discovered the online fandom. Instead of the news, I stream Star Trek when I get home and can think about a more positive future. And that struck me as really interesting and important, like that a lot of other media that we consume actually is quite psychologically damaging. There's always in this 24 hour news cycle that we have, especially in the Western world, there's always bad news. And sometimes it's often bad news that you can do nothing about. In fact, fairly often it's bad news that you can do nothing about. And so, you know, whether it's an earthquake on the other side of the world in which hundreds of people have been injured or whether it's a war happening somewhere or... I don't know, an election in which somebody you really don't like has won, <laughs> you know, it, it can actually have a psychological impact on you and it can leave people feeling very depressed and sort of hopeless, hopeless, basically. And I think that watching Star Trek is the perfect antidote to that because Star Trek is all about hope. It's a hope for a better future and it's a vision of a better future. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I suppose, you know, characters in Star Trek do, you know, go through difficult things, but they always come out of it one way or another, pretty much. Sebastian on Twitter got in touch with us and said, similarly, I suppose to what you were talking about, living through difficult times, he said, Generations, in fact, helped me through a particularly difficult year, 1994, by reminding me to accept loss and to gather strength in appreciation of the moment. It was a bad time of my life. I wouldn't say the movie saved me per se, but it had a message that seemed oddly fine-tuned to the personal issues that I'd grappled with at the time. So sometimes I suppose it is a case of just the right message or the right story coming along or the right kind of example coming along and, and kind of helping you one way or another. 
And I think certainly when there are, you know, when Star Trek has dealt with, you know, specific topics, whether that's, for example, PTSD or something like that, that, you know, a lot of people watching it have then felt, okay, yeah, I can, you know, I can relate to that. I can identify with that as people who've gone through that same experience. Often seeing those experiences depicted on screen, whether it's, you know, a bereavement, a loss, whether it is a kind of traumatic experience, whatever it is, can be helpful in a way. You know, sometimes maybe it isn't, sometimes it's quite difficult, but certainly there is the the potential for Star Trek or any show, I suppose, if it's done in a sensitive and a helpful way to kind of help people just by dealing with those stories. And certainly my feeling is that it's a positive thing as, you know, Star Trek has kind of progressed through its history. I think the shows have tended to take mental health issues more seriously and to give a bit more time and a bit more consideration to them in a way. And I think that is all to the good, both for us sort of as a society, as a culture, in terms of our understanding of mental health, which is developing constantly and certainly has developed a lot in the course of my lifetime uh, and certainly over the course of Star Trek's lifetime, but also obviously, you know, can be helpful to people individually who are experiencing similar things to what they're seeing on screen yeah i think also it's important that it's not just seeing people in star trek who are experiencing loss bereavement or some sort of mental health crisis it's also seeing people on screen that are like you as a person so and one of the comments here that we received on twitter was from an individual called alusia alusia habiki and she said that star trek is basically my coping skill for life in general not just difficult times The fact that there are obviously actually autistic characters in every series, even though they're not explicitly labelled, gives me hope for the future. Reginald Barkley, DePaul, Balana, Seven of Nine, and that's just core characters. And I think that's what's really interesting about Star Trek, is that it shows neurodiversity. So it's not just showing people who are like, uh, I'm trying to think of an example, like Captain Kirk, you know, who are ambitious, type A personalities, who although he has his problems, you know, he's going to go out and be brave and have amazing adventures. It's also showing characters that are more introverted, perhaps maybe people who are on an autistic spectrum, you know, people who don't think like everyone else, you know, and they're not necessarily mentally ill. So I want to clarify that neurodiversity doesn't necessarily mean mental illness. It means people thinking differently and people's brains operating differently. But that's also important because if somebody's different than you, you can very quickly label them as the other, you know, something strange or awkward or weird. And if you're living in a world where you have some sort of different um, way of being and everyone else has a, a, a more general way of being, so you're li- I've often thought about, you know, one of my husband's colleagues um, was partially sighted and he was living in a sighted world. He was living in a world where everybody can see. So although being partially sighted is not a mental illness, living in a world which is completely not structured for him caused him to feel very lonely and depressed at times. So just because everyone's completely different than you, sometimes can make you feel more isolated and that can lead to you know, mental health problems. And so seeing someone that's like you on television is really important. And I actually think that's, I think Barkley in particular is a very important character because he's really the only Star Trek character, apart from maybe McCoy, that we see who's frightened of the transporter. And if you think about it in reality, I would say probably, I don't know what, like 70% of the people (laughs) on Starship should be frightened of the transporter. I mean, if you think about how many people are frightened of flying in today's culture, you know, and, and I actually think being frightened of the transporter is actually 
quite logical. <laughs> so totally I was rational. Thought, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's totally rational. You know, I mean, just as like actually being frightened of flying. Yeah, but you know, rational. I was going to say I I have a phobia of flying, and I would say it's totally. I mean, I, I understand like uh, on a kind of intellectual level, it's not totally rational. But on the other hand. Yeah, anyone anyone who has a phobia of flying can kind of explain to you exactly what it is that they're they're thinking about. You know, we'll go on to talk about it, but most phobias are actually quite rational. It's just that they it's the extent of the fear that limits your life. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They're they're kind of out of control one way or another. They're kind of um, yeah, maybe rational is not the right word. I don't, I don't know, but it's like they're, they're at least some, they're, they're comprehensible. They make sense in the way that you make sense of things. But I think Barclay is an interesting character because um, you know, in some ways, I wonder whether. The, the, the downside of the way that Barclay is presented is that he is always presented as a kind of comic character. He's a bit of a kind, I suppose he's a bit of a sort of Woody Allen in a way, in that, you know, if you think of Woody Allen always plays these characters who have all these kind of neuroses, but they're kind of a bit ridiculous and pathetic at the same time. Do you know what I mean? He's not a very positive kind of torchbearer for those kind of issues. Maybe someone like Tilly is a bit more, she feels like a bit more of a rounded character. She feels a bit more of a sort of positive character in general somehow. She's not she's not seen as a problem, if you know what I mean, in the way that Barclay is. But at the same time, she has some of the same kind of issues that, that Barclay does or some of the same kind of challenges. And it was interesting, even just looking in the recent short Runaway, which dropped last week, you know, we saw a little bit more of Tilly, well, we saw directly Tilly's relationship with her mother and some of the ways that, you, you know, the impact of the family dynamic that you have growing up can obviously impact people's mental health and how that they can, you, you know, you got, got the sense in that short, even I think that Tilly is obviously dealing with issues generated by her mother, basically, on a pretty regular basis. And that is a challenge that a lot of people, you know, carry through life one way or another and, and you know, have to struggle with and do their best to kind of overcome. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think that Tilly does have who does exhibit a level of anxiety that other characters in Discovery don't, um, other than the exception of Saru, which I'm sure we'll go on to talk about. But in the, in the example of Tilly, she's not letting it hold her back. Exactly. And she's still going for the command training. She's still very ambitious. She's very, you know, she knows what she wants. She's very competent. She's good at her job. You know, it doesn't really... I wouldn't say it really impacts on her work. Whereas Barclay, obviously, you, you know, not obviously a lot of people, their mental health problems do impact on their work. And that is, you know, realistic. But at the same time with Barclay, there's always a sense that it's kind of, you know, his phobia is getting in the way of the crew doing their job or his issues are kind of, he's literally not turning up for work because he's busy on the holodeck or whatever. So it, it's sort of more problematic somehow, I suppose. Yeah, I would argue that Tilly has more support from the people around her than Barclay does, you know, and that might be that might be the reason why um, Tilly succeeds more in situations than Barclay does. Obviously, there is a big time difference between Discovery being made and Next Generation. And, you know, even 10 years ago, start, uh, sorry, mental illness had more of a stigma than it does today. I'm not saying there's not a stigma today, obviously. There's a long way to go before people feel truly comfortable to express the fact that they may have had a mental illness or they may have anxiety or depression, especially when it comes to men. But it, it's better now than it was 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, it was a lot worse. And so if you think about, you know, the next generation when that was being made, it's even further than 10 years ago. So the idea of a man being anxious or scared of something you know, back when Next Generation was being made, you know, maybe there wasn't as much understanding then. Whereas in Discovery now, you know, they, they have the Saru, you know, there's Ash Tyler, there's, you know, I mean, the Admiral Cornwall, she's actually a 
Cornwall, Cornwell, Cornwell. Um, she's actually, you know, she's actually a you know psychologist. So, so there's more kind of basically what we're seeing is a more up to date version of Star Trek, I think, in terms of mental health. Yeah. Although, I mean, we can come on and talk a little bit about Discovery, because I sort of feel that Discovery um, slightly goes both ways in, in the way that it, it represents mental health. But definitely, sort of more generally, culturally, I think you're right, there's more sensitivity to to some of these kind of areas. I might just read out a couple more of the, of the messages that we got in. Mark uh, Squire contacted us on Twitter. He said, I have bipolar disorder. One of the symptoms is extreme suicidal ideation. Knowing that there's Star Trek and especially knowing that there's more to come that I'd miss if I were gone is something I can hold on to. Also, I watched TOS during depressive episodes for distraction. I grew up watching it, so it's like visiting an old friend. When I'm depressed, I'm pretty insular, so I avoid a lot of social interaction. TOS is the surrogate for that, I guess. So again, I suppose that sense that, you know, in, in a way, I guess these kind of families that we see on screen, they become a kind of surrogate family. They become a kind of surrogate group of friends in some ways, you know, at times when you're going through something difficult, maybe you don't have access to your real friends, either for practical reasons or for psychological reasons, or you're feeling very lonely or whatever. It can be a source of kind of solace um, and, and a source of support as well. And obviously, I suppose, even just in the comments that we've been reading out and the things that people have come to us with, there are kind of two, I suppose, sort of categories, almost the kind of things that people have talked about Star Trek helping them with. I mean, there are what we might classify as kind of mental health disorders, which are, you know, more like what we talk about as mental illness, where there's a kind of sustained for a period of time way of, of thinking of feeling and so on that is kind of, you know, not necessarily the, the normal of how you you'd hope to be or whatever. And then there's moments of, you know, bereavement or loss or something that has has caused a kind of distress to someone in the way that it that anyone might experience. And I suppose Star Trek can clearly can help with with both of those. Someone else on Twitter, Chad, said, when my cat died, I got a new kitten and named it Lieutenant Data. So, you know, there's an example, I suppose, of something that everyone has, well, maybe not everyone has experienced, but many people have experienced the loss of a pet or, you know, these kind of losses that we have in life. And again, those are situations where people might turn to Star Trek. It might be something that brings a bit of distraction, a bit of positivity, brings something positive to their lives. I thought maybe we should also mention a couple of examples, not from people who got in touch with us, but one that crossed my mind when we were talking about this was I'm sure a lot of our listeners have come across the story of Dan Davidson from the Trek Geeks podcast. He's told this story several times, both on that podcast and on the Mission Log podcast and also on Trek Profiles. I think if you if you check out those podcasts, you can hear him talk about this story. But he had a very extraordinary story where he was literally on the point of suicide and watching an episode of Star Trek stopped him at the point where he was going to make that decision and kind of brought him back from the brink in a way. And it was the episode Captive Pursuit, the early DS9 episode where O'Brien is helping the alien Tosk from the Gamma Quadrant. And he said he just, he saw that and he kind of, it, it kind of brought him back from the brink. And I believe he was actually able to go and meet Colin Meany quite recently at Star Trek Las Vegas, I think, and go and, you, you know, tell that story to him and basically say to him, look, this is what, uh, this episode literally saved my life. You know, Star Trek saved my life. And it's down to you and, and your character in this episode that, happened to be what came on the TV at that point that that happened, which obviously is quite an incredible thing to think, you know, I'm sure incredible for Colin Meany as an actor to to think that you've had that kind of impact on someone, you've had such a positive impact on someone. But, you know, in, in that kind of extreme situation, that, that was something that Star Trek was able to do for someone. Yeah, I think part of it is because 
and maybe at the moment of suicide or the moment of when you're like really in that situation where you're about to commit suicide, you, you're looking for a way out, you know, and a lot of people think of suicide as oh, obviously many people commit suicide. And in fact, I've just been reading a really brilliant book about suicide. It's very, not very cheery reading, but it's a really, really good book, which if anyone's interested, I can, um, I'll put the details on the Babel conference page on Facebook. And one of the things I was really struck by was how different suicide is across the human population. That there's this idea of the way suicide is presented in popular culture of people being very, very emotionally distraught right before they commit suicide. When actually one of the things that's said in the book is that people can be quite calm um, because if they feel like they've made a decision, this is, uh, it's almost like they've got to take an action, you know, that they've, they're going to do something. And once they feel like they've made the decision to do it and they're about to act on it, they can feel this sort of sense of calm coming over them. And in a way, I can see that watching an episode of Star Trek is choosing to do something different, even for just a short time. And that that might kind of just deviate you from the path of, of, of your earlier decision. Uh, so, do you see what I'm saying? Like it's, it, it it's, it's not. It may. I mean, it's good that it was a, that particular episode that spoke to him, but maybe it doesn't really matter which particular episode it is. But it's just that you're choosing to spend an hour watching this show that you chose to. You chose many times to watch that episode, or you many times to watch that show, and so th- that action takes you back to a time when you weren't suicidal, or takes you back to remind you that this is something that you do want to do, and watching star trek as being part of being alive uh so yeah it's a really interesting really interesting story i do wonder how Carl meany would feel about hearing this sort of thing but it can't be something that i imagine that is unknown to star trek actors because as we were, as we're saying here like star trek has been really supportive um to many people who've gone through mental health crises so and also there's that story of James Doohan, isn't there, helping that suicidal fan by getting her to continually return to conventions to meet with him. And so he knew that if he could make sure that she turned up to the next convention, that would be another period of of time in which she wouldn't have killed herself. So if he continually got her to show up, you know, like, I'm counting on you to be at the next convention so I can see you again. So you have to keep yourself alive long enough to see me at the next convention. He's just extending it and extending it and extending it to the point where she may not feel suicidal anymore, or she might be be able to receive the help that she needs in that time period. And again, it's a little bit like choosing to watch an episode. You know, it's 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 not solving the problem. Like one episode of Star Trek isn't going to make you better. It's not going to solve anything. But it's that decision to do something different, just even for a short time. It maybe gives you the space and the time in which to actually decide not to kill yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, obviously, you know, for James Dewan, that was a, a very decent and, and kind thing that he did. He, he apparently he said later it was the best thing he ever did in his life was basically what he did for this fan. And she wrote to him in the end and, and said she, you know, she turned her life around and she was much happier. And she was pursuing a master's degree in engineering, I think, you know, presumably with some kind of link to James Doohan and Scotty and Star Trek and so on in there. But I think, you know, I suppose that actors who work on Star Trek and they go to the conventions and they get to meet the fans and so on, they do at some point, I suppose, get to understand how much this show means to people and how much it has helped people. And they might not literally have, you know, necessarily saved someone's life, but they may have contributed in some way to that person fulfilling a career ambition or, or even 
you know, having a career ambition in the first place, it may have kind of impacted positively. And I think that's quite unusual for actors really to have such a positive impact on people one way or another. And certainly, you know, in, in James Dewan's situation, being able to, you know, literally, again, save this woman's life pretty much by stepping in at the right time, being the person who, you know, who could step in, who could bring some kind of positivity. I mean, apparently what he said was, you know, what he would do was just try and say positive things to her, try and encourage her every time. And then, as you said, you know, try and promise her to come to the next, and the next convention at this time, you you know, it might only be a few weeks away or whatever. So he was kind of able to keep tabs on her in a way that I suppose in those days, you know, we, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have social media, we didn't have ways for kind of you know, either contact would be more difficult. It would be a case of like writing letters back and forth and that sort of thing. So it'd be harder to keep tabs on someone that you didn't really essentially know personally. But he was able to do that and was able to help that woman and obviously, you know, made a huge impact on her life. Well, maybe we should um, move on from talking about uh, Star Trek as kind of Star Trek as therapy, I suppose, Star Trek as a kind of a balm for for poor mental health and move on to talk about how mental health is kind of presented in Star Trek itself. And I feel like we're, we're often kind of saying this, but I feel like with this topic, we need to put out a bit of a caveat. You know, this is a huge topic. Uh, we'll do our best to, to cover it in some detail, but we're not going to hit every single Star Trek episode that deals with mental health one way or another. So, you know, if there's something that you think we we should have talked about or that you want us to know what we think about or to share your own thoughts on, the Babel Conference is definitely the place to continue the conversation after we drop this episode because it's a big conversation, it's an important conversation and it's one that is whatever we do is going to go beyond the scope of, you know, whatever we manage to talk about. I thought maybe um, we might start by talking about discovery since you kind of brought that up earlier and talking about some of the kind of positives and negatives about the way that mental health is dealt with in discovery. And maybe we could start just to kind of get out of the way with this kind of issue that I think hangs over the first season anyway of Star Trek Discovery in a way, which is this sort of question of whether mental health is kind of, is sort of, the treatment of it is kind of diminished in a way because you have these two characters, Lorca and Ash Tyler. And in the first section of, of Discovery, kind of up to the break, both those characters appeared to be having storylines that were sort of very interesting mental health storylines. You know, you had two characters, both effectively suffering from quite severe PTSD. Um, you, you know, we really engaged with them as these kind of regular, you, you know, sort of our Starfleet universe human characters and we engaged with what appeared to be their kind of mental health issues. You know, for example, Lorca sleeping with a pistol, un- with a, a phaser under his pillow. Ash having this kind of, you know, real uh, inability to function, essentially, when he's on the Klingon ship and in the presence of Lorel, who we understood to be his torturer, as, you know, a human who'd been subjected to Klingon torture. And then, of course, all of that good work and all of that, those amazing performances from both those actors, I think, in playing that and all of the kind of intricate writing that a lot of people were saying when that first section of of the first season of Discovery was airing, you know, this feels very real to me, I can relate to this. It's so great to see Star Trek taking mental health seriously. It's so great to see a sort of nuanced um, depiction of PTSD that is, you know, that's exactly what it what it really feels like. And then, of course, the rug is completely pulled out from under all of that in the second half of that season, because it turns out that Ash Tyler is actually really a Klingon and, you know, it, what he thinks of as... It's, it's sort of slightly unclear with him, I suppose, how much, you know, yes, he was physically kind of tortured in a sense in that he underwent this process and so on. But a lot of his kind of traumatic memories are essentially confused one way or another. Lorca, 
is not a kind of regular Starfleet character who's been through a really awful experience and is suffering mentally as part of it. He's actually a moustache twirling villain from the mirror universe and he's kind of playing it all along. And in a sense, I suppose what you get is this idea that that mental illness can be almost not much more than an act. So in a way, although Cornwall says to him, you know, you faked the psych evaluations, you faked getting your command back, you may just think that you were fit for command and, clear, and clearly you're not, because he's kind of saying he's, he's desperate and he, you know, he, he, she sees him as someone who's mentally unstable, essentially. At the same time, that is almost put on as well. Clearly, that's kind of a, an element of, of fakery to it as well. And again, with Ash Tyler, there's this sense that, you know, yeah, really what's going on are these kind of plot shenanigans and, you know, this kind of Manchurian candidate style story. And his apparent PTSD was just a kind of a manifestation of that in a sense. So again, it sort of wasn't really real. And I do sort of wonder, you know, is that kind of problematic in a way that Discovery with those two characters ends up kind of almost playing the same trick twice? And yes, those are great twists and they're great reveals, but both of those reveals really undercut what seems to be quite an interesting and quite real mental health story. Well, yeah, and I think that we can all agree that despite the fact that Star Trek is pretty good for a sci-fi franchise of portraying mental health, both good mental health and bad mental health, I think we can all agree that Starfleet is pretty crap at mental health evaluations. I mean, and I would include Troy in this. Sorry, sorry, Amy. I would include Troy. Um, And I would include, I'd include (laughs) Star Trek Discovery, the fact that a person can not only lie so well, like from from a mirror universe can lie so well that they can completely and utterly take over someone else's identity in a different universe. But they can also fake, you know, good mental health and avoid, a, you know, a Starfleet, uh, you know, kind of like dupe a Starfleet mental health evaluation. I mean, what kind of people do they have evaluating the mental health of Starship captains? Do you know what I mean? I, I, I was, as soon as I, had, I heard that he could dupe mental health professionals and he could fake on all the tests and he could get through. I was thinking, what, how stringent are your, are your counselors or your psychologists, your psychiatrists? Like (laughs) guys, you need to get your act together. I think that Starfleet doesn't really do a very good job when it comes to mental health. They don't pick up on the signs of PTSD. They don't seem to understand the concept of how people might be bereaved when people are lost in uh, in battle or in accidents. And a lot of people are lost in battle and accidents throughout the entire franchise or the series. They hire the most inept counsellors who often can make a situation worse before they make it better. Their doctors don't seem to massively understand anyone going through any sort of mental health crisis. And the commanding officers, with the exception occasionally, I would say, of some commanding officers, I would think Janeway is pretty good at picking up on Balana's um, mental health crisis in Voyager. But with, with the exception of her, maybe, and maybe some other instances, I would say the captains and the commanding officers and the first officers and anyone in command is pretty bad at looking and seeing the stress that their junior officers or their subordinates are under and picking up on poor mental health. So though Star Trek as a franchise is good at portraying some of this stuff, I would say that Starfleet itself is pretty bad at it, which is a bit shocking for this peacekeeping, you know, amazing exploratory force in a utopian future. You know, so they've got a lot of other things down. They're doing a lot of other things really well, but they're not really doing a very good job with mental health, which is worrying, really, if you think about it, when you're miles away from home and you're in space facing peril all the time. I was disappointed by the fact that Lorca and Tyler turned out to be other characters than what 
I thought they were going to be. I mean, I wasn't disappointed to find out that Lorca was evil. I was disappointed to find out that he wasn't suffering from PTSD, that he was literally a completely different personality. And I was, I, I am, I am disappointed about by Tyler's storyline. I personally never found the idea that they could make a Klingon into a human very believable. There seems to be something slightly magical and less scientific about that, which I thought was a real problem. But I understand it's science fiction, so there's always going to be things like that, you know, um, sort of strange storylines. But I did think him suffering from PTSD would have been a, a good enough storyline as it is. And I think the fact that the other members of the Discovery crew didn't seem to show a huge amount of PTSD, including Stamets, who lost his partner, the fact that they didn't seem to show much of that seemed worrying to me. You know, I mean, they've seen so much death by the time the first series ends, you would think that there would be an emotional and psychological fallout from that. And there doesn't seem to be one, as far as I can tell. Maybe in the second series we will see something. But it, I, I was shocked that, that the kind of primary example of PTSD is Tyler. And that's not actually PTSD. It's that he's got another alternative personality in his in his, in his mind. And I guess you could say that's maybe an example of multiple personality disorder or something, but they're not calling it that because it's, con con it's been constructed. And when sometimes Star Trek does this thing where it, 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 it gives an example of a mental health condition, but it constructs it through some sort of supernatural means. Do you know what I mean? So somebody is physically, somebody's violated, but it's, it's because, like I was thinking of the example of Troy being violated, telepathically violated, in, in, in you know, the next generation. That's that's basically a metaphor for rape, really, isn't it? But it, it's, it's done in this weird supernatural way, and there doesn't seem to be much fallout from it afterwards. Do you see what I'm saying? So the way Star Trek deals with trauma isn't always very good. And, yeah, sometimes it's indirect. I, I mean, personally, I don't think there's necessarily... I mean, uh, it, we could have a whole other episode about the way that Troy is, is used in Next Generation and how problematic that is. But I don't think it's necessarily a problem that Star Trek has these kind of more allegorical or more kind of sort of sci-fi ways of dealing with things. And, you, you know, you could say, for example, in uh, Deep Space Nine, we see Dax as an example of someone who, you know, you could say has multiple personalities. There's that episode where they all kind of come out and get embodied by her friends. There's an episode of Voyager where Seven of Nine kind of goes through all these personalities that the Borg have, have assimilated, I think, and, and she's kind of manifesting all these personalities. And again, you know, obviously there's a kind of link to multiple personality disorder. And yeah, you could say that's what Tyler is experiencing. But I think maybe the problem is they could have played it that way, but they didn't. They played it very straight down the line as a depiction of PTSD that seemed quite believable and quite psychologically sort of well-written. And I sort of wonder whether one of the issues with season one of Discovery is it's almost a victim of its own good writers. And I think that I recently did a rewatch of the whole season and I kind of realised that when I first watched it, when it was, you know, kind of airing week by week, I, I, I sort of, I liked it, but I always felt a little bit ambivalent about it. And going back and rewatching it, I kind of realised that actually I like almost everything about Discovery. The only thing I'm ambivalent about is the kind of general narrative plotting. I feel like it's kind of off the wall. It's a bit crazy. It doesn't really make all that much sense to me where they're going with the season as a whole. And it kind of veers off in strange directions and then comes back and things don't quite seem to mean what you thought they did. And, and the way it wraps up all seems a bit mad as well. But 
every other aspect of that show I think is brilliant. I think the actors are fantastic. I think the writers on a kind of episode by episode level do a really fantastic job. And I almost wonder whether with someone like Ash Tyler, you've got the combination of a fantastic performance from Cesar Latif and actually some really good writing going into those episodes in the early part of the season that almost make it more real than than maybe it seemed when they were kind of plotting out this storyline and they were like, yeah, he's going to have these symptoms, but really they're just a sort of decoy for, for what's really, he's a Klingon agent. And that seemed cool and exciting and kind of, you know, that's our kind of plot shenanigans. And, and then they're kind of a victim of their own more sophisticated writing and acting and directing and so on, who've actually sold that more believably than than almost fitted the kind of overall arc somehow where it, it becomes kind of a bit disposable and a bit of a kind of not quite a gimmick but obviously it's it is a decoy it's something that's that's not real but at the same time when we're watching it in those early episodes it feels completely real yeah i think it's actually funny that we should be talking about ash tyler because i just finished watching the tv series penny dreadful and i didn't realize it but shazad latif is also in that series as well and he plays dr jekyll who as we know has two personalities dr jekyll mr hyde and and in the in the series he plays an individual who's mixed race he has an indian mother and a white british father and the show is kind of making it out that he's very torn between his two different like ethnic backgrounds and this is one reason why dr jekyll's obsessed with like the duality of personalities and i thought it was kind of a mistake really to be honest because it's like it's like kind of over egging the pudding you know it's kind of over explaining something like over explaining the duality of dr jekyll and mr hyde by having dr jekyll have two different ethnic backgrounds and i feel a little bit like that about ash tyler and vok you know, it's like, it's like over explaining PTSD by making it not be PTSD, but making it that Ash Tyler is actually completely two different people. And whereas maybe that storyline of Ash Tyler having PTSD was kind of okay on its own. It didn't need to be that he was a Klingon in disguise. You know, it was okay if he was just somebody who suffered from PTSD because he'd been tortured by the Klingons. I kind of think that would have been a good enough storyline it is. But then perhaps her discovery suffers slightly in terms of the narrative plotting because of the fact that it had two different showrunners, right? So so sometimes things like that, things that kind of go on to do with the actual construction of the show sort of change the actual storyline and the narrative storyline of the season. So sometimes it isn't actually something that's been plotted out from the beginning. Although I do feel that Ash Tyler being Vok was actually plotted, plotted out from the beginning, really, wasn't it? Because it's, it's sort of made to be that way. Well, because they were very cagey about who the actor, they had this whole, you know, sort of blind of a fake actor who, who for some reason never turned up to conventions and had no previous credits on IMDb and so on. And, you, you know, that kind of, it was a bit farcical, wasn't it? There was that Twitter account for the real Javidic Bal, I think was his name, the name they, you know, gave to this person who was supposedly playing Vogue. And, and so, yeah, it was all, it was all very much, that's sort of what I mean is I feel it was all very much geared towards this big reveal and this twist and the kind of game that they were playing on the audience. And obviously, presumably didn't realise they'd be found out by the very canny audience so quickly. They they thought that they would kind of get away with this and it would have been an amazing surprise. And I'm sure it was an amazing surprise for those people who watched it and hadn't been, you know, reading up online and seeing all the kind of explosion of interest on Twitter and so on that, that led into it. But I suppose it seemed like they were, they saw that character as a kind of, a sort of a, an opportunity for plot 
for, for kind of narrative excitement and drama and twists and turns. And, and again, with Lorca, again, it seemed like it was all very much geared towards this big twist we were going to get and how exciting the twist was going to be. And I mean, I'm not saying I don't like twists and turns in my, you know, serialised TV dramas. And obviously when Star Trek becomes serialised, it has to engage with that a bit more. They do have to be more kind of twists and turns. But the danger, I suppose, is with those two characters, the twists actually kind of undermined what would have been more interesting character work, you, you know, if they hadn't been forced to to kind of veer off in a totally different direction. I think um, on the positive side, though, with Discovery, you, you know, one thing that they did do, which I don't think anyone was really expecting, which is kind of creeped up on people in a way, was with the character of Saru, they... I assume intentionally, I don't think it can possibly have been accidental, but they certainly didn't play up to it in any way. You know, we talked about characters who people felt represented someone who's on the autistic spectrum or so on. You know, many people felt watching Saru that he was a character suffering from anxiety, suffering from generalised anxiety disorder. And I actually felt, the funny thing is when I watched the first couple of episodes of Discovery, I watched Saru and I sort of thought, how is this guy in Starfleet? Why is, you, you know, why is he behaving like this? He just seems to be scared of everything. This is ridiculous. And I don't know why. It took me a few episodes to sort of get into it and actually think about it. And I suppose it helped in a way that episode that Kirsten Beyer wrote, which, you know, people didn't love particularly where he was down on the planet and he kind of was like Saru gets medicated and he kind of loses his anxiety and he, he becomes much... He says for the first time in his life, he kind of doesn't feel afraid. But anyway, at a certain point, I think the penny dropped for me. And I was like, wow, this is actually a really interesting character and a really interesting way of tackling something, which is a subject that I think, you know, we talked about how our understanding of mental health has changed over the years. Certainly the understanding of anxiety as a kind of counterpart to depression is something that, you know, in my lifetime has become much more well understood. I think, you know, it... it, from my sense, anyway, it's, it's in more recent years that people have started to understand anxiety, to understand the impact that it can have on people. And, you know, I say this as someone who has experienced periods of quite bad anxiety. It took me a while to see that in Saru. I mean, I actually, a year or so ago, I had a period of quite poor mental health, which was a mixture. It sort of started off feeling more low, feeling generally quite depressed and, and low. And then it sort of settled into what was more like a kind of general anxiety and a real, and what it felt like to me, and it was particularly for me focused around work, was like, it it is very much like the way Saru describes, you know, being a prey species, having a predator out to get you, you know, feeling, literally almost feeling like there was someone looking over my shoulder the whole time. And I, you know, in terms of work, just feeling like I couldn't cope with the most basic things. So like a sheet of A4 paper was too much. I'd have to, you know, the kind of compromises you make, I was kind of cutting things up into smaller pieces to make them more manageable. And, you know, in a way, so reflecting on it and thinking about it, I can totally understand Saru's situation as someone who is dealing with fear on a a daily basis, which is what dealing with anxiety is is like, really, but not letting it stop him, you know, not giving up in a sense. And I can absolutely relate to that. And I think a lot of people can relate to that and kind of forcing yourself to go on and forcing yourself to engage with those things, however difficult they might be. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that he ends up in a position of command. I think that's really important. I think we have this idea that our leaders are these strong people that never doubt themselves. I think we have this idea that people who are high achievers never doubt themselves. People who are successful never doubt themselves and never experience anxiety or fear. And so Saru is a good example of somebody who... I mean, we haven't seen any other members of his species in Starfleet so far. I mean, maybe there are, but we haven't. And, uh, you know, so far as we know, he's the only one of his species on Discovery, which is uh, an achievement to get through Starfleet Academy. I often say I don't think I'd ever end up in Starfleet. I'm just not 
smart enough. But you know, he's he's there. He is, and he's he's a member of the bridge crew. He's in the command structure, and then he eventually does end up becoming captain for a bit. So the anxiety is something he has to live with, and it's difficult. But it doesn't prevent him from holding positions of responsibility and from really succeeding in, I would say, quite a demanding and difficult career out in space, which is really, it's really important to see that. So if you have, if you know, you are someone that suffers from generalized anxiety disorder or any sort of anxiety, you know, issues that are continual and feel constant and feel like that you could hold you back. Saru is a great example of how, you know, they don't have to hold you back, that you can still feel the anxiety, you can still feel the fear, but do it anyway. And I've always thought that actually people always assume people who are brave don't feel any fear. And I'm sure there's some examples where people go off and do brave, amazing things without any fear. But then I think, really, are they brave? Can you be brave if you haven't been terrified of something? Do you know what I mean? I mean, in order to be brave, I think you actually have to feel frightened. I think that, I mean, overcoming fear is basically being brave. And so I really felt like that when I was watching Saru. I felt like that he was being brave so often and that it was it was showing, it was coming across, and the fact that he was able to keep the crew safe during times of extreme peril. I was slightly concerned a little bit by how Burnham reacts to him sometimes. And I think because he is a different alien species, it's very easy maybe for ha- perhaps for the other people on the crew, maybe the more human members of the Discovery crew to look at him and see his anxiety as part of his prey species. But I also think that that is also himself as well. You know, we haven't seen a huge number of members, a huge number of his, his species, but I also think it's very intrinsically him as a character, not just his alien background. It's like saying, you know, is Spock the way he is because he's a Vulcan? Well, partly, but also Spock is Spock because he's Spock. Do you know what I mean? So, I did. I did feel that it was very intrinsically him as a character, and I felt like they brought that across rather than it just being the fact that he's a Kelpian, which I thought was really good. Well, that's interesting, and I guess in a couple of weeks' time we'll find out because I think we're going to meet Saru's sister, aren't we? In one of these short episodes, the short treks that's going to drop soon, and I guess we'll see how they deal with that. It's always interesting in a way where you have one character who represents a species sort of personality. You had it, say, with Neelix in Voyager. We've only met one Talaxi, and then when we meet the next one. How, how kind of Neelix-like are they going to be, in a way? And what's the, yeah, what's, as you say, the boundary between the kind of individual personality and the kind of species characteristics? And I think, in a way, you, you know, I think Saru's a, a really interesting character, a really interesting example. Um, I think people, even when the first trailer for Discovery dropped, and I remember I was on Trek FM, we, we did a kind of immediate reaction when they first dropped that trailer, and, and the one line that everyone was a bit concerned about was this line about sensing the coming of death or whatever, which kind of only starts to make sense when you think of this idea of Saru as from this prey species as almost being like cattle led to the abattoir or something like that, as these kind of hunted creatures. You do kind of start to get a sense of what that otherwise rather mystical kind of a slightly bizarre sounding statement might might really mean. But I think definitely as the series goes on, you get a sense as the first season goes on and hopefully going forward into the second and beyond, you know, we're getting to know Saru a bit better. We're getting to understand a bit better 
what it's like for him. And the fact that, you know, this is really something that he lives with on a daily basis. And we have seen him grow as a character. We have seen him grow to kind of accept command, to be more confident in command, to be a kind of a leader who people will take orders from, someone who's respected in a way that he isn't really at the start of that season, I think. You know, by the time he gets to the end of it, he's gone on quite a journey. But you also get this sense, I think, with Saru that he's someone who is living with this fear or anxiety, however you want to characterise it, that is not affecting everyone else. You know, he is, and that's certainly what it's like if you're, you know, if you are suffering from anxiety, the most basic things that, you know, that might have been straightforward to you six months earlier, you know, going to the shops or or going out or, you you know, doing some kind of fairly mundane, ordinary, everyday things can seem terrifying because that's what, that's the impact that condition has on you. And I think Saru is definitely someone who is living with this on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's really important because I think, Often when Star Trek has dealt with mental health in the past, it's very much in the kind of episodic form. And even when we come to look at DS9 and Voyager, where I think there are some great examples of storylines that deal with mental health, there's a bit of a tendency to, you know, it's kind of here this week and gone next week. And, you know, everything is wrapped up very quickly and very straightforwardly. And I think, you know, by virtue of the fact that in Saru's case, it is represented as being connected to his being Kelpian rather than, for example, a, a trauma or something that he's gone through personally, it allows them to kind of make that more of a kind of organic part of his personality in the sense that this is something that Saru deals with and that we're going to find out more about and that we're going to learn about. And also the serialised nature of the storytelling, I think, um, you, you know, helps with that. Maybe that, again, is one of the issues with Ash Tyler is that, you know, yes, we've seen characters suffer from PTSD in Star Trek before, but it's usually been within the kind of scope of an episode and then it's almost forgotten about next week. Whereas when you have this kind of serialised storytelling, we're seeing it week after week after week and it's getting developed and it's getting kind of more complicated and you're sort of building and building up what seems to be something more real. And then it turns out that all you've built is a house of cards and it, you know, it wasn't really real to be to begin with, in a sense. But I think definitely Saru is a good example of someone who is living with their mental health in a way, in the way that people do in the real world, where we don't divide our lives up into short, you know, 45 minute episodes. Imagine if we did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would be interesting. Yeah. You know, (laughs) set a timer on your watch, but also probably one interesting 45 minute episode every, you know, couple of weeks or whatever. Um, well, well, maybe that's a good point to to move onwards. And I was thinking we'll we'll stick in the twenty third century for now. We'll 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 jump back right back to the beginning of Star Trek, back to the original series, and have a little think about the way that mental health is represented there. Which I suppose you know we have to kind of recognise this was fifty years ago. You you know hopefully our understanding of mental health has improved since the nineteen sixties. It, it seemed to me looking at some of the episodes in the original series that dealt with this issue, there are kind of two directions that they tend to go in. There's the kind of rather sort of hammy, cheesy, kind of criminally insane characters of. I mean, if you think of say the episode "Whom Gods Destroy," which is basically almost like an episode of Batman set in Arkham Asylum. It's this you know these kind of very extreme, grotesque kind of almost kind of wacky mad villains essentially running around and, and, and being awful and again it's a slightly less kind of extreme but dagger of the mind i think has a, you, you know something in common with that kind of idea it's very much focused on the kind of the asylum the, the inmates in this kind of institution who are kind of dangerous and they've they've been kind of lobotomized and you know to render them safe and so on and the, this the kind of threat of these um crazy people who so i think in the original series mental illness is always represented with makeup somehow so they're, they're sweating a lot they're, they they basically the weird thing is that the makeup for someone who's suffering from poor mental health is basically the same as the makeup for someone who's an alcoholic so if you think of like 
um, Captain Decker in the Doomsday Machine. He looks an absolute wreck. He looks like he's sort of, you know, wandered in off the street with a bottle of scotch in his hand or something. You know, that's how they, that's sort of how mental health is, is represented on screen. It's almost sort of physical disarray. I suppose almost like, you know, going back to Shakespeare, it's women with their hair down. It's the kind of, you know, the inability to present that kind of clean cut image. And obviously, you know, not to, I, I know I sound like I'm trivialising it. Obviously that is, to some extent, there there is some truth in that, that if people are suffering from poor mental health, it may affect their ability to, uh, or their desire to take care of their appearance or so on. But I think in some ways, the way it's dealt with in, in TOS is, is a bit, it's, it's very sort of cartoonish sometimes, the way that that's represented. It's very kind of black and white. And, and the only area where it gets a little bit more interesting is in the idea of kind of stress and burnout. And that seems to be the area where the original series can kind of deal with questions of mental health where they might relate to the regular crew. Typically, it turns out that they don't. So there are various episodes where Captain Kirk is sort of, there's the kind of the possibility or the looming threat that he might be kind of stressed, he might be burnt out, he might be kind of losing his grip one way or another, court-martial, for example, or the Enterprise incident. But in fact, you know, it turns out it's all a bit like Ash Tyler. It turns out it's all part of a ruse or it's all part of something else. Or it's not, you know, in court-martial, it's not really the case. There's been some kind of plot going on. It's nothing to do with Kirk's mental health. So they can kind of raise the idea of the captain who is kind of burnt out, who is kind of at the end of his rag. But at this end of it, it doesn't really go anywhere. And we see that, I guess, again, in, you know, in fact, in fact everywhere spanning 50 years of Star Trek, from the cage to Star Trek Beyond, where you have the captain at a point where they're kind of burnt out and they kind of had enough. There, there, there is, you know, that is, I suppose, a mental health story in a way, and that they've lost their kind of excitement for the job and so on but by the end of that story they're going to get it back and it's all you know everything's going to kind of come out in the wash it's all going to be fine in a sense yeah i can't say that i think the uh, original series actually does mental health very well what i do think they do do quite well though is bereavement i mean okay so not completely brilliantly but they do it better than i would say for instance discovery so uh, i think about you know the paradise syndrome when kirk loses his pregnant Native American Indian wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't Mirami, I said, is that her name? Yeah, I can't believe I even said that sentence. Um, but when he, when he, when he, you know, loses her, and he's pretty grief stricken about it. And isn't there another episode where someone he loves dies, and Spock tries to make him forget? City on the edge of forever. Or city on the edge of forever is an example. That's a big one. Example, but, um, of, yeah. No, there's yeah, another so I know one. Yeah, so you mean some, forget. Yeah, he comes and does a mind yeah, and he goes to forget. forget. Yeah. yeah, and so does that. And then the movies. So mm. obviously, there's an example of the entire crew losing Spock. That's very distressing and upsetting. There's, I would say, a certain amount of people experiencing trauma and the wrath of Khan. And uh, you know, obviously, there's McCoy. You know, there's McCoy. I, mean, I know it's a supernatural thing in the sense that, or spiritual thing in the sense that Spock's Catra is in him, but he's definitely. What you would, I mean, if you didn't necessarily know that, you would think he was suffering from some sort of psychological stress from losing a friend. And I did think the way that he was treated in the search for Spock by Starfleet officers was pretty strange. The fact that nobody immediately thinks this man is suffering from some sort of mental breakdown. Instead, they put him in a holding cell, which I think is pretty bad. <laughs> but it's actually what happens in today's world is very often the police are left to deal with people when they suffer some sort of massive mental health breakdown or psychotic, you know, sort of episode. Partly that's because mental health services are underfunded and not really good enough. So, you know, I, I was a little bit horrified, though, that in our utopian Star Trek future, that that's what they're going to do if you start suffering from some sort of episode in a bar in a Starfleet 
or, or Federation outpost or whatever, they're going to stick you in a holding cell. But anyway, and then also the cyborg, you know, and cyborg, I can't say that his weird cult, like <laughs> brainwashing is a good example of good mental health, but he's all about taking away trauma. And in order, and when, it, and that means that he reveals the trauma that the enterprise crew carry with them. And so that does, it does actually show that people are carrying trauma with them and still going about their daily, daily lives and still performing their duties. But that, I mean, we don't really hear about McCoy's father until the final frontier episode, uh, movie. Uh, but then we, we learn that he is walking around with this pain and guilt at helping his father to die. So they are, they are saying these aren't perfect completely mentally well characters is what i'm saying that's true but at the same time i suppose they're also saying you could say they're saying that these things don't really affect they don't outwardly affect them like everyone it's almost sort of stiff up a lip you know push that away and, and get on with your job kind of thing and you know I, I don't know yes they all have this pain but kirk even is reluctant to give it up isn't he, he says he needs his pain you know so this trauma is not only kind of a true part of him, but it's sort of, uh, he, he feels like he's, he's kind of not whole without it almost. But at the same time, I suppose what we don't see. So, so yes, people can have a kind of trauma that they're carrying around and it can be distressing, but it doesn't impact their ability to do their job. I suppose in the way that when we come to think about mental health storylines, particularly saying deep space nine and Voyager, which we'll come talk on, which we'll come to in a little bit, you know, we, we see more storylines where, where there's a kind of personal crisis for someone and it is affecting their, their daily life in some way. Whereas, you know, if we hadn't had that encounter with Cyborg, we'd never have known about what had happened that's from true. in the past. Um, yeah, that's true. But I do think it is important to also show that people are capable of continuing on a daily life with some sort of mental health condition or, or, or with, or with, with trauma. I mean, because there's this idea if somebody's coping and they're going to work that they are okay and they're mentally well. And what Cyborg was offering them was to let go of their pain and be happy all the time. And being happy all the time is a different kind of mental illness. You know, I mean, it's, it, and we can't all be balanced all the time. There are times when we will feel happy and we will also feel very low. And there are times when we will suffer more and sometimes when we will suffer less. But I think. I mean, it's a bit like Janeway. She strands her crew in the Delta Quadrant. She feels guilt over that. And I think she's a good example, especially for me, right, who's somebody who actually almost everybody thinks is coping all the time. People always seem surprised when I ever seem low or depressed or upset about something because I'm almost always put a smile on for every single person that I meet. And so, you know, it's a bit like Neelix. It's this idea like, oh, Clara is so happy. Neelix is so happy. You know, Janeway is so strong. But underneath it, they are carrying around this sometimes quite severe distress and I, but yet it's okay. You can carry that distress with you and you can still like do your job and you can still like live with it. And so men mental health difficulties aren't just people not being able to go to work or not being able to get on the plane when they're frightened of flying. Mental health difficulties are also people who are seeming from the outset to be constantly fine, but actually what they're doing is constantly coping. Yeah, of course, that's true. Although I suppose you could say with all those characters, it does have to get to a point. The reason that we find out about it is because it gets to a point where it's not okay. So the reason we find out about Janeway's sense of guilt and all this kind of stuff she's carrying with her, and actually I would say maybe a, a fault possibly in the writing of 
Voyager is that we don't find out about it until it's got to the point where she's literally, you know, hiding in her quarters, essentially, rather than facing the crew because she she can't deal with it anymore. The point that we find out about the traumas that Neelix has been through are when they're really kind of coming to impact on him and, and he's having a kind of a crisis around it. And yeah, I, I take your point that people do get on with their work. They do get on with their lives. We hide our mental health from other people. And to that extent, I suppose you could say that what Discovery was doing is is almost you know, metaphorically is kind of accurate to the extent that we do, you, you know, we we aren't necessarily honest about our mental health. And, you know, partly that's because there is a kind of stigma around it. And, you know, certainly historically, the further back you go in time, there's more and more a stigma about it. I mean, I was just thinking, we were talking about the Doomsday Machine. The Doomsday Machine, there's that line, which you get a lot in TV and, and film and so on in popular culture, where basically Decker commits suicide and Kirk says he's not going to put that in the log. He says, you know, he'll say he died in the line of duty or whatever. You know, that that is an example of, of stigma around mental health and basically trying to say we don't want to acknowledge that this person's mental health was in such a poor state that that's what caused their death. But but I, I, I take your point. Yes, you see these characters and they're, and they're coping and they're managing and so on. And, that you know, that is truthful. That is is kind of honest as well. I'm not sure really talking about the original series, though, that that is so much what we're seeing. Because I just think again and again, what we see is kind of, is that there, you know, is Kirk really suffering from burnout and stress and and so on? No, he's not. He's, you know, that's just what people think might be happening, but actually it turns out that he's fine. Yeah, maybe by the time we get to the films, the way that they're dealing with kind of trauma and so on is a little bit more nuanced. And there is more of a sense of kind of serialization in a way in the films because, you know, something that happens in one story can kind of have consequences in the next, whether that's, especially when you're talking about bereavement, whether that's the death of Spock or the death of David or whatever, these things kind of have lasting repercussions. Whereas actually, you know, the death of Edith Keeler, however tragic it might seem at the time, by the time we get to next week, you know, no one's going to remember she even existed. Um, And that, that is partly an aspect of, the way the original series is kind of, you know, of, of the era that it comes out of and the the kind of TV that it comes out of. But it is also, I think that is that is kind of problematic in some ways when you're talking about mental health. And that is something that affects these stories going right through, you know, even to DS9 and Voyager as well. It's a kind of a lack of continuity when it comes to people's mental health in a way, even if you can, in an individual episode, tell quite a powerful, interesting, uh, quite real story in a sense you, you know that the reality of these things is yes they come and go and so on but they're they, they don't fit within one you know short episode in that way i think one of the major problems like what you were mentioning with the original series i mean what i thought was impressive was their their expression of bereavement i suppose but like in terms of like the idea of some sort of like mental health breakdown some sort of psychotic disorder you're right like the dagger of the mind and whom gods destroy those sort of like the insane asylum i've never really liked stories about insane asylums because i feel like it's making mental illness seem like something that's absolutely terrifying and something that you know can be in i suppose in like the naked time can somehow be passed you know and i know the naked time is actually about a virus that has a name and everything a contagious virus but it is that whole idea of like madness is kind of catching and one of the things that I've always been surprised is that when someone has really bad news and I'm thinking of my own family I'm thinking of my own experience um especially when it's health related and mental health related and you tell somebody sometimes you react people's reactions can be very different and in recent years people's reactions to stuff like that has been very empathic and very kind 
But like I said, 10 years ago, whenever I talked about this sort of thing, um, sometimes I would get reactions from people where they almost acted like they could, like it was frightening to them because it is frightening, you know, like the idea of sort of losing your mind or losing your sense of self or losing your ability to uh, to regulate your emotions. And uh, it's almost like they felt like they could catch it. And some of these sort of Arkham Asylum type episodes, I feel like it, it, you know, it's like, it's almost like a sort of, it's hard to explain, like madness is contagious. And just by being associated with this sort of mad characters, you know, you could also become mad. And I sort of think that's also sort of continued in the whole idea that Spock, you know, mind melts with crazy people. And it's always dangerous to him because he could become mad. You know, that that sort of thing, I think, is, is bad. I think it stigmatises mental illness. There's also the element of the kind of freak show with, you know, something like Kim God's Destroy. There's definitely that kind of, you know, sort of almost like a sort of circus of, of, of mental illness somehow that's going on there. And, 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 you know, these are characters who aren't just mad. They're kind of depraved and awful and, you know murderous and you know definitely it plays into a lot of those those kind of stigmas there's also i suppose just a sort of naivety around mental health in the original series there's you know in whom gods destroy i think the captain's log at the very beginning the reason they're there is to test a drug which they say will eliminate mental illness forever so there's this kind of idea that and i think even in dagger of the mind it's like this is one of the last hospitals for sick minds that they're they're talking about It's, it's like this idea that I don't know, it just it all seems a little bit simplistic somehow. And it also seems very much kind of us and them. It's not really something that is going to affect us as the crew, you know, the crew of the Enterprise, the heroes of the show. It's something that's going to affect these kind of other sort of pathologized, slightly monstrous characters in a way that they're going to encounter. It's not a very sympathetic treatment of of, of mental ill health you know other than maybe the the example of of decker maybe is an example of someone where it is kind of explained what he's been through it's kind of understandable that he's kind of cracked in that situation and there's more sympathy for him in a sense and kind of more understanding in a sense i feel like in that episode there's maybe a little bit more of a sense of kind of there but for the grace of god go on you know this could have happened to any starship captain who had experienced what he's experienced somehow but i feel like that's the only episode where really there's that kind of I was going to say nuanced to it, and it's not that it's necessarily a nuanced portrayal, but it is a very powerful portrayal and a very effective portrayal of someone who is, you know, is effectively experienced a kind of of PTSD and, you know, with catastrophic results, really. But elsewhere, it just feels like really, I I suppose, again, you, you know, mental illness is more of a sort of plot device than it is something to really be taken seriously. We'll leave the discussion there for now, but for next week, We'll post part two, talking about mental health in the 24th century, in Star Trek Voyager, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and Star Trek Next Generation. In the meantime, here's a listen to what else has been happening on Trek FM this week. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. However, one thing Everyone's I do Everyone's going to sing the song, Everyone Join Me. Life Force. No, I will not join you, I'm sorry. Okay, however... you? Meta Treks. Speaking of character, I always found it interesting how many ways Q manifests himself, the characters that he takes on. We see him as a Starfleet commander, a Bajoran waiter. We see him as an alien captain. Uh, this this Q's is just a, a cosplayer. This is a man of many faces. Who knew Q was such a theater geek? The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. 
I felt like I was in a Vegas casino and the bling, bling, yeah, bling, yeah. like it <laughs> was the jackpot. And I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on? How is she affecting the replicators? And that's throwing food out. I've never seen a replicator throw food out. Melodic tricks. Well, it was definitely about a lower budget. There was no question that we could not afford Jerry Goldsmith. And later, by the time we got to do Star Trek VI, we couldn't afford Jamie Horner. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at ClaraGeneMC. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter, and online, hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from the X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at at MissAmyNelson. You're blended all right.